Amen. Well, thank you anyway. <laughs> so, um, Friday night, uh, we had a football game at Kent County High School, and uh, it went, we lost pretty bad. It was not fun at all. Um, but one thing that happened before the game was actually funny. Um, there's an unwritten rule in high school football, or yeah, pretty much any football game, that you stay on your side of the field before the game. Right? You, don't, you don't cross on, over on the others. Whether it's basketball, you don't get on their side of the court. If it's Whatever, you stay on your side. Uh, well, the, the coach of the opposing team, he and I are friends. Uh, I mean, he has issues, just like I have issues. But, but um, still, that crossing that midline, it doesn't matter how friendly you are. You know, it, What was funny was that he got furious because we were running plays and they were extending over the midfield line and Oh my goodness, you could hear him before the game just yelling and screaming, do you want us to move to the end? Are we in your way? You know, all this kind of stuff. And, and he was just getting mad. He went on and on and on. I mean, the whole pregame, I mean, well, not the whole thing, but for a couple, four or five minutes, you know, we were violating that rule, right? <clears throat> but, but he went on to rant and rave, and I know that in the pregame, you know, that was his whole shtick was, you know, the disrespecting us and blah, blah, blah. Well, the opening kickoff, they kicked an onside kick, the opening kickoff. I mean, I was like, wow, that really got under his skin. You know I mean? That really, that really irritated him. And I knew it did. Um, and I knew it would. You know, I didn't, I, I, <laughs> we didn't do it to provoke him, but it, still, it was, I, I knew it was coming. It was still pretty comical uh, to watch it happen in somebody else's life, knowing that I've probably done something just as ridiculous before, uh, acted in just as silly of a way as he was. Because I've been motivated by perceived wrongs, right? Have you ever felt like somebody did something just to get you and in reality that's not what it was at all, right? It was just somebody did something and, and you took offense, right? I've been motivated that way. It made me think of all the other ways that I've been motivated to do things that I normally wouldn't do, but because I was spurred on to action by, by things, not always what people have done to me, but, but sometimes it's just by other people's success, when other people win at something, it motivates me to try harder or to, to use a different tactic or, or whatever. Just, to, just because if they did, well, daggone it, I can do that too. Or I should be able to, right? We've all, I think we've all been motivated in all sorts of ways. But these are two that I want to talk about today because they're in our text today that we're going to read in Matthew or in Genesis chapter 30. Up to this point in the story of Genesis you may have heard, understood that the family of Jacob is pretty messed up. Well, if you thought that they were messed up up to this point, I got to tell you that today you're going to know that they surely are as dysfunctional as they come. Um, as we're going to see today, envy and bitterness are the two things that, are, that jump off the page as we work our way through the text. I think of envy as that emotion that, that comes up in us when, when, when we deserve what other people get. And we're envious. It's kind of like jealousy, but not quite the same way. It comes about, or it comes out of us when we, we compare ourselves to others. Uh, bitterness is an emotion as well that often moves us, that often motivates us to do things. But that's from more like in my example of feeling wronged by someone. Or that, or that we, or that because they did something to you or they took something from you. We feel offended. It can be in a perceived offense as well. It doesn't have to be real. It doesn't have to be intentional. 
It can just be the way we see things. But that starts bitterness. That's why I love um, preaching the Bible because, because the Bible includes all these stories. It includes all these stories of, of, of messed up families, of, of people who do things with the wrong motivations. When you read stories like this in the Bible, like of Jacob, like, like we wouldn't naturally share these things about us. But the Bible does. The Bible puts them in there. As if to hold up a mirror to us and say, look, there you are too, right? And, and when I read it, I read it and I'm like, wow, I've done that. It's exact same thing. That's why I love stories like this that are, you read them and like today's is probably one of the most outlandish stories in the Bible. But, um, but it's very much that I, I can identify with it. So if you brought a Bible today, or if there's one near you, we're in Genesis chapter 30. And I'm just going to read through first 24 verses. Yeah, and I'll stop along the way and make comment. But then we're going to come at the end and we're going to come back to this envy and bitterness. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. Some versions say envious. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. It's a demand. Jacob got angry with her and said, am I in the place of God? I mean, who am I, God? I, I have no control over that. Don't blame me because she's fertile myrtle, having babies like crazy, and you're not. Who has kept you from having children? God alone. Verse 3, then she said, here is Billah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children from me, and I can build a family through her. This has happened before in the story, right? When we heard it with Sarah. Right? Sarah gave Abraham her servant. People don't learn. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her. And she became pregnant and bore him a son. So, okay, so this is the third lady in his house that he slept with. We know that this is not going well. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a, a son. Because of this, his name She named him Dan, which means God is my judge. Daniel, God is my judge. Rachel's servant, Billah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. And she named him Naphtali, which is to struggle. So she names one the judge, and the second one the the struggle Because it's all about her and her sister. It's not about anything else. God is not coming into this really at all. uh, Other than to say that God blesses me when I, you know, I recognize God when he blesses me, right? And so here here is all of this at play in Rachel. Leah steps back in the picture in verse 9. She saw that she had stopped having children. And she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now he's married to four. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune I have. Not how God has blessed me, but what, how lucky I am. And she named him Gad, which the only really religious significance to his name is, is that was usually the name that pagans would use. To, instead of God, they would use Gad. Leah's servant bore Zilpah a, a second son. Leah said, how happy am I? The women will all call me happy. See, she's getting back at her sister. So she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants. 
We don't know what a mandrake is. They think it's some sort of, uh, it's called a love fruit. So it's some sort of aphrodisiac of some sort. We don't really know. But anyway, he found some, brought him to his mom, Leah. Rachel said to her, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But, but Leah said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So now she's pimping out her husband. You know, I don't know what, how you would describe this, but, but this, is, this is a messed up family. I mean, there's no way to look at this and say, oh, well, they really had it. No, they didn't have issues. They are a completely dysfunctional. Completely. But we can see it coming when you, marry, when you have four women in your house, you sleep with them all, and you tell one you love them, right? You knew where this was going. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Ishkar, which means my, my hire. Hire, so she's reminding like they they name all these children, these boys who become the twelve tribes of Israel after this dysfunctional episode in their lives. It's 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 wild. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, "God has presented me with a precious gift. This time, my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons." So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter. And named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she said, God has taken away my my disgrace. So she named him Joseph. And she said, may the Lord add to me another son. So she named him this this one, Joseph. His name means and another. (laughs) Like, like she's not like this isn't enough. I want more, right? Like uh, it, it, envy is never ending. It's a never ending swamp that they're swimming in. And this isn't the first time that we've seen envy play itself out in Scripture. Genesis chapter four, verses four and five. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock as an offering to God, right? And what does his brother do? God had God regarded his offering, right? But the offering of Cain, he did not, and so Cain got angry. And he murdered his brother. Envy can lead to bad, bad places in the New Testament. Envy is the emotion that the the leaders of the temple had. Mark chapter 15 tells us. When when, um, Pilate had Jesus on trial, Pilate said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He asked them that because he knew that they were envious of Jesus. That's what the scripture says. Envy, very closely related to jealousy that we experience today. In our story, it didn't lead to murder between Leah and Rachel, but it certainly led to a twisted family. Look at the, I mean, looking at the language that they used, Rachel makes it clear, naming her son Naphtali, that she struggled with her sister. Not hard to read between the lines that there was a lot of comparing and complaining going on in this family. What does she have? What, why don't I have? You know, all that is going back and forth and back and forth. That's not a happy life. That is not a happy, that is not a, a pleasant, joy-filled, there's no way, there's no joy in that, right? 
We can see it and know that those women were miserable. Miserable. Always. When all we do is compare and complain, it leads to misery. Envy spoils life. And life was meant to be enjoyed. But envy steals joy. Children are supposed to bring joy to our lives. But here, they name them struggle. I'm lucky you're not. One more. My reward. It's all selfish stuff. Always, it kind of to rub the nose of their, the other in their blessing, right? This pastor, uh, Andy Stanley, he's, he has this phrase, there's no win in comparison, right? There's no win in comparison. And not, maybe you use the one I use, it's not fair to compare, right? I always tell my kids that all the time. It's not fair to compare, but in reality, it, it's not, but we get caught up in it. When we're focused on what others have and what we don't, dissatisfaction with what we have is sure to come. We can't even be happy with what we got because we don't have what they have. There's always someone else who's got, who's richer, who's got smarter kids, who takes fancier vacations, right? Who has better decorated houses, who have cleaner houses, who have better football teams. There's always someone else who's got more, who's more successful. There's always somebody else we can compare ourselves to. And when we start to see what, what we have or the people in our relationships, right, as less than what they are, that's when envy starts to rot the relationships in our lives. Envy leads to rot. Socrates, the Greek philosopher, he said, um, pretty, he sums it up, really, that, that we might be able to channel, to motivate um, Envy to, to spur us on, but there's a price we pay with it. That, that it leads to death, is what he says. That envy leads to death in our lives. In the next text, we're going to see another driving emotion at play. But first, I want us to remember, in the rest of this chapter, I want us to go remember what's happened to Jacob, right? He ran away from home. Sent away from home, running from his brother who he thought was going to kill him. Go get a wife from my brother, my, your uncle Laban. He agreed to work for this wife, this girl that he fell in love with, love at first sight. He was going to agree to work for her for seven years. His uncle tricked him. And he was tricked into marrying another daughter. And he had to work another seven years to get the bride that he wanted to begin with. 14 years of his life he's given up. And now, several years and several children into this, he's falling in deception again here with Laban, we're going to see in the text. Starting in verse 30, chapter 30, verse 25. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. It's funny how he... I mean, these are his, right? It's very, they're a possession to him, his wives and his children. It's odd. But anyway, Laban said to him, if I've found favor in your eyes, please stay. Uncle Laban wants him to stay because he's gotten 14 years out of him. Maybe I can get some more. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. I can see that the Lord has blessed me because of you. 
Name your wages and I'll pay them. Now all of a sudden he flips. He's like, oh, but if, you, if you're going to leave, tell me what I owe you and I'll pay you. Jacob said to him, you know how hard I've worked for you, how your livestock have fared under my care. The little you had before me has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I've been. But now, when may I, when may I do something for my own household? He's saying, I, I, you've seen how you've been blessed because I've been here. Because these 14 years that I promised to work for you, you've gotten rich off of me, right? He says, I want to go and, and build my own family now. Send me away. In verse 31, he says, well, what should I give you? Jacob says, don't give me anything. But if you will do this one thing for me, I'll go on tending your flocks and watching. He said, I don't want anything that I didn't earn, right? I I don't want anything I didn't earn. He says, let me go through your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark colored lamb, every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. Let me take out the the imperfect ones. Let me take the ones that aren't perfect. Let me take those as my my wage. And you can keep the ones that are perfect. Now, honestly, he says in verse 33, will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you've paid me, any goat in my possession that's not speckled, spotted, or any lamb that's not dark colored will be considered stolen. It's like these will be my brand. The speckled ones, right? Laban says, agreed. Let it be as you've said. He agrees to it. That same day, though, he removed all the male goats that were streaked and spotted, all the speckled and spotted female goats, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of of Laban's flock. You see what happened? Like, he says, deal. You take all the spotted ones. Boys, go get the spotted ones and hide them. It's basically what he's done. Right? So, so Jacob goes back to work. Verse 37. Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plain trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches, and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and spotted colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus, he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever a stronger females, Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones went to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants, camels and donkeys. Okay, so there's a little bit of, uh, like, like, Jacob thinks he can control the, the spotting and the speckling, right? Like, it's, it's not scientific. He takes sticks that are spotted and speckled and puts them in the water thinking that if they drink the water, then they'll, become, then they'll have speckled and streaked use, right? We all know that that's not how it happens, but, but the point is, in the text, is that out of bitterness, he's getting back at Laban. He's getting him because he, he took everything I, I deserved and now I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to take everything he's got. 
right? In his mind, he's being sneaky. In reality, God is just saying, okay, we're going we're to let this play itself out, right? God sometimes does that to us. Even takes our uh, deceitful plans and uses them. The problem of bitterness is, is it goes hand in hand with envy. Not necessarily, but oftentimes you see them together. Just like envy, when we allow bitterness to, to sprout, right, in our lives, it gives control of our lives over to other people. Who's in, who's in control of Jacob? Laban. Laban was the one pulling the strings and, and pushing his buttons. Jacob had given him control. Now for Jacob, there was for sure a large reason to mistrust his Uncle Laban, right? I mean, he, Uncle Laban had earned this, you might say. He had every reason to try to deceive him, I guess. He'd been lied to. He'd been tricked. He'd been tricked into marrying a woman that he didn't love. And then he'd been defrauded to, to work another seven years. And now, as pay, for his payment, he was cheated out of that as well. Normally, we'd never get to this point. We would never get to this point, right? The relationship would be broken by, the, by now. We would have left. Someone would have left. I'm sure that, that we've never let it, go, let it go this bad, that we've never been deceived this many times. Well, maybe we have by the same person, right? We've kind of gone back to the well and yeah, maybe we have. For us, it's usually a small offense. It's never usually not anything this big. Usually it is a small offense or maybe even a perceived offense. You feel slighted because they didn't, say hello, or they didn't speak, or, or whatever. Or, or something you said was misunderstood. Like, like you didn't mean it that way. But man, as soon as you said it, you saw their kind of neck stiffen up and their ears turn red, and you're like, oh boy, what I say, right? It happens all the time. Just a little thing. It's a seed of an offense. A seed, just a little bitty seed of an offense. But we let it grow. And it grows into a root of bitterness. We don't just let it grow. Actually, we, we kind of we encourage it to grow. We, we, give it, we give the offense space in our thoughts. We give it room to grow. Continually thinking about it. Remembering what they did. Right? Remembering the offense. Digging it up. Looking at it. Entertaining it. We rehearse how it happened and what we're going to do about it or what you could have done about it or what we should have done, right? Not the only one here. We all do this. How we could have made things different, how things should have been different. As it grows, it grows to the point where we easily see the bad in other people, especially in those people. We see the bad in them because there's no denying it. And this takes us off the hook because we begin to feel justified. We feel justified in criticizing or gossiping about them, talking about them, running them down. Because they're the bad guy. And when we face hardship, we celebrate their misfortunes. I mean, I caught myself thinking about my friend who's a football coach. Man, I can't wait till they get theirs. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was like... What are you doing, man? Like, you're doing the same thing. No. Nobody wants to be around people like that. I got it. That's the news flash, right? We all know people who are bitter, and we don't like being around them. 
right? No one likes being around them except bitter people, right? Because when you get bitter people together, they, the world is after them, right? Everybody's against them, and they can all, they, can, they actually get along. There's, there's like studies about what kind of personalities help people who are struggling with bitterness. And the, the one that helps, the only one that becomes that, even a chance to be a healthy relationship is another bitter person. You think about that. When you put two bitter people together, they're like pigs in slop. You know, they're just rolling around, talking about everybody. And they're like, they're actually supportive of one another. It's, it's an odd thing, but it's actually the truth. Just like envy, bitterness, as Maya Angelou, she wrote, bitterness is like a cancer. It eats upon the host. It eats upon the host. That's why scripture is clear about the problem of bitterness and as well as, well as that of envy. Matthew 12, or Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Jacob and his family had struggled with envy and bitterness for one reason and one reason only. They're human. Same reason we struggle with it. Envy and bitterness. But God doesn't want us to struggle with it. God's revelation in Scripture is to show us how to overcome this this human brokenness in us of envy And bitterness, and that's to become an overcomer. When it comes to overcoming our tendency to, to envy, instead of speaking of envy first, that instead of getting caught up in, in in the comparison trap, right? Complaining about what we all we don't have, we can start to celebrate. Celebrate what God is doing. Instead of comparing and complaining, step one. To overcome envy and bitterness is to celebrate. To celebrate what God is doing. There's no win in comparison, I said. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. Celebrate what God's doing in others. When you see something good happen in a person's life, celebrate it. With your mouth, with your words, especially if it's someone. And that'll prevent you from becoming envious of what God is doing in their lives. If you celebrate it, if you thank God for it, if you lift them up in prayer, that'll help you from ever becoming envious of what someone else has. Celebrate what God is doing in you, in you, that God is at work in your life. Begin to see those things, those places where God is at work. And celebrate. You don't have to be prideful and boasting about it, but you can thank God for it. You can tell your family what God is doing in your life. The good things that God, we all need to be reminded of the good things that God is doing. Because our world is always telling us the bad things that are happening. We need to be telling each other the good things that are happening. I've noticed in churches that whenever we lift up prayer requests, it's always need, 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 this bad, this bad. And you ask somebody, well, what can we praise God for? It's crickets. Why is that? We're so focused on what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. Let's praise God for what's right. We got electricity. We got heat. We got a building. We got breath, right? We got all kinds of things to praise God for. 
That's what we need to constantly, we need to put our minds on the good things that are happening in this world. No, we don't have, because there's always going to be stuff we don't have. But praise God for what he's doing, what he's already done. Scripture tells us that Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. One of the ways he does this is by tempting us to be envious of one another. But Jesus came to give life. To give life. And one way we experience life in all its fullness is by loving one another. By loving one another. And we do that in celebrating what God is doing. And that celebration in what God is doing helps us to fight this whole envy thing. Or the, the, the bitterness piece. That's step two. Releasing what God has done. Releasing what God has done. First we celebrate what God is doing, and then we release what God has done. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. See, the fact of the matter is that the past can remind me, but it, I can't allow it to define me. It can remind you of what was or what, what happened, but it doesn't have to define you. That Christ gets to define, he, he died for the right to define who you are. And so we release forgiveness. What God has done, he's forgiven me. I mean, the person who offended you, the person who offended me, may have a, li- a, a list of sins that's a mile long. Your list might just be a, a letter page, right? Eight and a half by 11. It might just be one page. Theirs is a mile long, but, but your, your one page of sin is enough to, to, for God to die on the cross. Their mile long list took no more, requires no more than what your one page did. Forgive as we've been forgiven. And that forgiveness that you've experienced that changed your life is the very thing, the only thing that can change them. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Release forgiveness. And every, so, so what does that look like? Every time that memory comes up, that trigger, right, makes me want to be bitter towards that person. Every time it comes up, tell you, forgive. No, I forgive them, Lord. I forgive them, Lord. Every time it comes into your mind, forgive them. Every time, forgive, trigger, forgive, trigger, forgive, trigger, forgive, trigger becomes a memory. It's just, it's no longer who you are. It's just, eventually, it loses steam. Satan starts trying other things to get you, right? (laughs) And he he will. But that no longer becomes a a, a trigger to bitterness. It becomes just something that happened and I I get to move on. That is no longer controlling my life. By forgiveness. And then release the blessings. Release what God has done in your life. Release the blessings in your life into the lives of others. Don't hold what, you've, what, the, what God has done good in your life. Let it, share it. Share it with others. Tell people the story of what he's done. How he's delivered you. The, the physical blessings of your life. Right? There's, there's no better, better way than, you know, a good pie. To make up for someone who's bitter, right? Someone who's offended you. Just serve that person. 
There is no other way than serving someone who you once held uh, anger towards. There's no better way to cure that than to look for ways, find a way to serve that person. If you've been offended, you've been hurt, go to Jesus and then figure out a way to serve them. I'm telling you, there's no clearer way than following the character of Christ. He died on the cross for those who killed him, right? He didn't die for the holy people. He died for the people who murdered him. You may be saying, Pastor, I can't. You don't understand. I can't do that. We get the idea that God would never ask us to do things that we can't do. That's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that God does ask us to do things that we can't do. And this is one of them. Clearly, God says, forgive people who you hate, who hate you. I can't exactly. He can. He can give you the strength. He can give you the grace. 1 John chapter 5 says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Today is the day to overcome what envy and bitterness in your life. Today is the day to overcome that. If you, if you came today, and that's, that's evident in your life, if you know that that's there somewhere in the little corners of your life, today is the day to address it. So I just want to pray. And I'd like you to pray with me. Lord, we're here. And we're considering envy and bitterness in our own lives. And if there are those here today, God, and I'm going to ask them to, to just raise their hand to you. If they struggle with, with bitterness and envy, then just lift your hand up. Just to tell God, Lord, you know I struggle with this. You know I wrestle with this. And if, for those who have their hands up, Lord, I just ask your blessing. That you would remind them again of the forgiveness that they have found in you, God. Let them know of the, the grace Again, give them a fresh reminder, God, of your love. And that love would change us in such a way, God. Fill them with your spirit, Lord. They, they, they love you, and they want to be filled with your power to forgive, God, to, to overlook the wrongs of others, God. They want to be filled with your power in order to bless people who've offended them, God. And that takes your grace, your love. Be at work in them today, God. I praise you. Others of us don't, don't struggle with envy and bitterness. Because, because we don't see them as what they are, and that is signs on the road that lead to death. Maybe you don't see them as signs on that road that leads to death because that's the road you're on that, that, that you've yet to surrender your life to Christ. So I want to pray for you as well, that you would today offer your life to Christ, that you would surrender to Him to be saved from sin and from death. Lord, as we turn our hearts to you today, God, that we would, that we would turn our backs to sin, that we'd repent and turn towards your way to live. God, we know that happens through Jesus who came and lived and died on our behalf. 
resurrect, rose again to conquer death for us, that we might live for you. God, I ask you to fill us with your spirit, that we might follow you all our days. We praise you, Lord.